Hi, everyone out there, and thank you for joining us again here at Ace Up Nowcast, the podcast for Ace Up Now. I'm Amy Ho, ER doctor and Ace Up Now assistant editor, and your humble host of this podcast, where we try to hit the highlights of the magazine while bringing you some new audio-only content. So last time we covered some big anniversaries for emergency medicine and, of course, Pride Month. And this time for July, we have another great episode for you. It is hard to be an ER doctor. Nay, it's hard to be a person with any connection to media nowadays and not be aware of the many, many, many tragic and controversial topics hitting the news recently. With Uvalde and then Highland Park and then obviously a lot of political debates, it's important for us to take our point of views as humans and citizens and also ER doctors and bring them out to the greater world. Because what we experience in our normal lives is one thing, but I think we can all agree that the ER is where the diseases of not only people, but of society will land. So I'm both saddened and a tad speechless that we continue to have mass shootings in our society. And as much as we need something to change, and I think that something is very much open for debate, I think we as ER doctors need to face the reality that the realities of Uvalde and Highland Park may happen to us on shift. So this issue of Ace Up Now, not only do we have an insightful piece about the Uvalde emergency medicine response to the shooting, but we are also lucky enough to have Dr. Gilberto Arbelayas of Uvalde Memorial Hospitals join us to give us his tragic but very important and heroic experience with handling the events of that day. We'll follow that this episode with a great interview with Dr. Aryan Noshat, ER doctor and palliative care doctor talking integrative medicine and how she integrated that into both the emergency room and her career. Check it out. Hey everyone. So I'm sitting here with Dr. Gilberto Arbelias of Uvalde Memorial Hospital, who is in this month's ASAP now as one of the ED docs that so heroically responded in the Uvalde shooting. Dr. Arbelias, this is a huge tragedy and our hearts absolutely reach out to you and the community. And we want to thank you for just taking the time to do this interview. Sure. Absolutely. Nice to meet you, Amy. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be able to uh, speak to you guys and kind of go over kind of what happened um, during that, um, the, the terrible day. And also um, accept your, all the prayers from coming across all, the, all over the country to the to the, the families that lost lost their loved ones, also to the to the nurses and the techs and everybody else that um, helped out that day. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just jump right in. I know a lot of this is covered in ASAP now in the article, but I think it's so nice to have a voice and a person behind it. So just tell us about that. How did you guys hear about what happened? What was your response like? Like, just give us it in your own words. Sure. Um, so that day, um, it was kind of interesting because the hospitals knew. I'm not sure if you guys saw it in the the news and all that, but it's, it's, it's a brand new hospital we opened up a couple months ago. And it turns out the, the, the floors of the main ER work area where the nurses sit and such, they have some scratches on it or whatever. And um, the contractors were like, okay, that day we're going to start cleaning out the floors. So they actually had us in the urgent care side of the hospital, of the ER, um, in the little makeshift room. Um, and we started off the day pretty busy. Um, I had a, a flash 
Colonel Edema, then I had to intubate. I started my shift at eight, so all this started like around eight after the clock, eight a.m. Um, and then had an aortic dissection, and we're a really small kind of critical access hospital, so I was working on getting all these people transferred because we couldn't admit any of those there in, the, in, the, in that hospital. Um, so we're sitting in our little makeshift um, dictation room um, when we kind of overheard on the radio that there were shots fired. Um, and, um, and we're like, well, this is kind of, this is weird. We weren't thinking, um, they initially hadn't mentioned anything about the schools um, being involved at all. Um, and um, then slowly everything started to transpire and we got a bit more information that was at school. And again, we weren't, we weren't privy to the fact of the, kids were involved or if the shooting was just around the school and then um, once we got more information that was an active shooter inside of school that's when our uh, Julia our nursing director there was like okay guys uh, we're going to tear all this stuff down we have to kind of go back to the old ER the floor is going to have to wait um, and that's when we kind of started getting um, ready and prepared for uh, what, what would potentially come in. Yeah. And, and if you don't mind me saying, you're like just so remarkably calm and you know recapping this like was this your first mass casualty? Like, was there a lot of thoughts going through your mind or was it just table that for now, like which ER doctors do all the time and just deal with the emergency at hand? Yeah, it was kind of one of those things where, first of all, it was kind of, I didn't even know what what, what, what to expect from it. It was more of a, it was a bit shocking in the beginning. I was like, oh man, this is really happening. And then uh, because, we, I mean, I, I trained at the at, at University of Connecticut uh, Emergency Resident Program, uh, which we were basically based out of Hartford Hospital. We could kind of get a, a ton of a trauma on our own, like whether it be PD or, or adult. Um, so I was like, okay, like like I remember being you know, gunshots there, but they were even sort of isolated, not like a ton at the same time. Um, so I was like thinking it was okay, well, like the get try to get everything ready, but at the the emotional component, like the the the, the shock of it, I don't think really. Uh, really kind of set in until kind of way after the fact. It was more like, okay, let me get what I need now so then we're not um, looking around for everything when, when actually needed because that's one of the things I really uh, despise is, is um, needing and knowing I need something and not having it uh, at hand. Yeah, nothing we hate worse than being unprepared. Well, tell us about that. What did you guys prepare for? Did you think it was going to be a lot of patients, kids, adults? What were you thinking? We were expecting, you know, it's, it's this kind of dichotomy in the ER, right? Obviously, you're there to help people and do everything, but you ever, you, you know, you almost, almost your goal, at least in these rural hospitals, you know, you, you, you kind of keep up, you sort of kind of try to clear the ER, um, you try to keep up with it, and you're like, oh, um, to trying to get your your metrics or what have you that the admin wants at the same token kind of uh, wanting time to you know sit down and have lunch and have time for all that um, but this is one of those few times where you're like just keep bringing more patients it doesn't matter just just bring more and more patients as as much as possible the main thing i wanted to get prepared for is you know in the er's you know with no surgeon available that could take you with the er stuff in the belly you can't really do much about so i was just thinking chest tubes if I can make a difference at all, then anybody um, would be uh, tourniquets and chest tubes. Um, so I had a whole bunch of uh, 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 chest tubes out and ready with the atriums ready. I had uh, some of my intubation stuff out, my backup um, crikes, um, and the needle decompression uh, uh, kits as well. So those were my go-to things and blood. We had them kind of blood ready, ready to go. Um, so those were the things I prepared for, knowing that I uh, could only do so much um, in the ER without having a surgery, a surgeon there. Yeah, for sure. Do you guys have to tell your transferring facilities to be on alert, knowing that there's you know potentially a lot of trauma coming in? 
Yes. So, so we have this, um, I, I trained in Connecticut. I've been in Texas for about six years, six or seven years now. Um, but we have this amazing trauma service here in Texas. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's STRAC. I can't remember what exactly what it stands for, but it's South Texas Regional Advisory Committee, I think it is. And they are amazing and they basically auto accept any transfer, any trauma transfer that we can't take care of our own facility. It's a single phone call. We just call them and they get me a surgeon on the line and they're 100% of the time willing and, and able to help us. And they'll kind of get it to the correct facility. For example, if it's a adult burn transfer, then they'll go to the military hospital. If it's a PD burn transfer, they'll go to UT. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's really well, it's, it works really, really well. That's great to hear. And it sounds like kind of by the end of this, you know, it was about... 20 patients that came to you guys and uh, that's not a slow shift even disaster aside what was that like so that was the so that's when i had my pa that was working with me bob Graydon, he's a great guy he's been doing this far longer i think longer than i've been alive um and he was kind of helping me triage them from up from from the people who walked in through the front um and kind of getting the word well and starting up the work up uh, so i could get to those other kiddos and uh um, eventually, after I got uh, through with the uh, more critical ones that came in at the beginning. Yeah. And, and, you know, I personally, I have always hated pediatrics and pediatric trauma, especially because it's just so much sadder, I think, when it's a kid. So like now that's been, you know, a few weeks, how have you processed? How's your team process? How are you guys all doing? I think we, I think we have our days, you know, sometimes we're, we're, we're fine and we're not fine, but I guess dealing with it a bit better. Other days are a bit harder, you know, when the, where there's where there certain providers where we all worked on a little girl together, come together, we sort of remember like how everything transpires. So then that comes up with more emotions or um, even sometimes when the little kiddos that did get shot that didn't require transfer. It came back for some local wound care that were for the wound shot wound. So then kind of that kind of brings things up all over again. Or the you know the kids that were in the in the rooms that had enough that thankfully weren't shot coming with anxiety. So I think all those things sort of kind of um, open up those wounds again. And um, and and it, what it really does help is that everybody's so close knit in that community. Um, so the nurses and the techs and all of us and the, the, the clerks will just kind of just talk about it and, and kind of kind of decompress a little bit and then just kind of keep on going. Yeah. Has it made shifts since then a lot just different or a lot harder in any way? Um, I think more, I think different. Um, certainly uh, you, you have this um, kind of increased camaraderie with them. Like I've been there for a while now. I think I've been there on and off for six years as a kind of PRN. And then full time for about a year and a half. It's certainly brought us together more. I think we're we chat a bit more than we than we used to kind of make more small talk um, than than we used to. I think we've become you know, actually we've become a lot closer. I think the nurses become closer with each other. Um, so I think the the, the shifts are just different. I, but I think we, it's made us more cohesive. Yeah, because after you've been through something like that together, I think it's you know a huge level of trust and kind of unity too. And now I know you have a little one. Has this as a parent made you feel differently at all? 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, um, like, you know, as, as, as just to kind of echo all the parents that were kind of, they got interviewed, you know, you kind of send your little one off to, to school and you, you expect it to be the kind of the safest place possible, right? Other than with you and with, with your actual parents or, or uh, uncles or, or grandparents. But yeah, that's been kind of a, a huge kind of area words I've come in, I had a hard time dealing with. Um, um, she's, 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 a, she's five years old, she's a few years younger than them, but every time I see these, the kid at the day of the shooting, every time I was taking care of a kid, I just can't fathom any like things happening to them, much less what the parents, you know, the parents are feeling, because, you know, the, the, I, I just can't, I can't imagine, like, I could sort of understand, but, you know, being in those, going through what they went through is just unfathomable. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, I know we're even still hearing just now there's like a grandparent that I think just got out of the hospital from, you know, wounds that they got from the shooting. And it's been, you know, about a month or so. Um, and, you know, people are definitely still talking about it. Like I, I kind of see, you know, just in the physician community, people are talking about getting their kids like bulletproof backpacks and like just all sorts of stuff because there's so much fear and this is this is a little bit of a political question, so you're welcome to 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 say to decline it. But has this shaped your opinion about any of the political debates about like mental health or gun control? We see so much of it in the ER. Yeah, we see a lot of it, especially for the mental health part component. At least the, at least in Texas, it's it's really tough. Um, it's really tough because in Texas, unlike uh, where I practiced before, which is Connecticut, um, you could tell, you, in Connecticut you could like. Say okay, you're on a 72-hour hold. We're gonna give this time. We're gonna have psych and involved, and and um, kind of sort of work you up a little bit more and get a better plan for you. In Texas, uh, it requires uh, emergency detention by law enforcement, um, and um, the way it works, unfortunately, is in, in San Antonio, you're gonna get a law enforcement pretty quickly. When I worked in San Antonio more, it'd be like okay, I have somebody who's in. In crisis, like we need you to evaluate them and see if they can be nursed detained or else they can just leave, right? Yeah. Um, and and Uvalde, we don't have that, so we're at the mercy of the patients sticking around. Um, even when they are around, there's very limited resources to, to place them, or especially if they're unfunded, there's just nothing, there's not much out there. Um, and a lot of people end up getting frustrated and want to leave, and we're like, we can't really force you to stay because that'd be assault i can't physically hold you against your will um so it's kind of this huge icon so we're trying to work a little bit better now with with the hospital you you manage with the local law enforcement if they could help us out with at least with emergency detention that we could chemically restrain somebody at least to stay and and to be fully evaluated by the psychiatry team yeah and i you know it's funny i'm in a dallas fort worth and even from county to county, the rules on what can be held under attention is widely different, like from 10, 20 miles apart. Yes, yes, it's, 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 it's I, I don't understand it. I've, you know, I've been here for six, seven years and I still don't understand when you're like, this is like a slam dunk, it should be an easy, like, like ED and admission. And it's like, no, safety plan at home. I'm like, oh, that's, interesting okay yeah yeah do you do you think like the recent events have made things more stringent or more urgent to fix in that though 
or not really? Yeah. Hopefully it becomes that. Um, I think it's certainly something to kind of kind of jump off of and, and take advantage of to, to, to get more resources into everything. I think having more funds to help people as an outpatient to obtain their medications, because sometimes we'll see them in the ER and they're depressed and you're not suicidal and then they get, they get a safety plan and then they never follow up with anything because they have the, don't have the resources for it. Um, where they can't drive there, or it's, you know, they, we've all, we serve like a, it's a small rural hospital, progressive, but we've served like places where even farther away where they have to drive 45 minutes to even get seen. Um, so, you know, it's like, I can't get a ride to see this person. So there's a lot of kind of social economic issues that uh, obviously we can't fix everything, but at, at least uh, try to mitigate it. Yeah, I know. It's so hard because we're the fail safe when things go really poorly. And sometimes it is a little hard to get into the prevention part of it. It's like a lot of advocacy and, you know, bigger politics. But, you know, I hope that, you know, a lot of the um, emotion that surrounded this event does become something that just makes, you know, everyone safer. Like it's mental health addressed better that, you know, keeps our kids safe in schools. Um, any, any last words you have for, you know, kind of the audience of ER docs, like advice that you have after going through this, or even just like, how can we as a community can help in uh, Uvalde? Um, I think just advice is just to kind of, I mean, I'm sure everybody's doing a great job trying to, not hearing from this, trying how to prepare, especially when, when you're sort of alone in a rural hospital, you know, kind of have all your, 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 your resources ready to build a bit, ready to build if you have time to do so. Um, unfortunately, I had plenty of time. It was one of those things that the, the active shooter was announced, and then we were like, okay, like, where are the patients? We had all this extra time to worry about to get everything ready. But I think if we, if you guys have a, a game plan in place and uh, mobilizing blood and chest tubes and, you know, cordises or, or whatever, or, or IOs rather, uh, which we kind of had all those kind of just ready to go. I think that'd be the the, the, the most uh, prudent thing to do to help yourself out and uh, give your patient a better chance. And in terms of help, I think everything, you know, the advocacy in terms of kind of better um, mental health and also better gun control, I think is kind of, I said policy, I think would be kind of a great step forward to kind of make us, especially the kids, kind of safer at school and, and when our kids get there, uh, make it allow us to feel a little bit be, uh, better about them being away from us and not being as scared that, that they're, that they're out there. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like as ER doctors, we already like give a lot to just trying to better safety and everything. And it is something to want to see our legislators do the same, but you know, Dr. Arbelize, I want to say thank you so much again, not only for just what you do for taking the time to share your story with ASAP now, it's a truly incredible one. And you know, we just want to say thank you. Sure, I'm sure. I'm going to say thank, thank you to you guys, and also thank you again to the trauma kind of coordination along with University Hospital and BAMC, which they were able to kind of take care of uh, all the transfer that, that, that required, and I appreciate all their help as well. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Hey, y'all. It's Dr. Cedric Dark, and I'm sneaking in real quick because I want to make sure you're all aware that registration is open for ASEP 22. And guess what? You can hear our next guest at ASEP in San Francisco. So go ahead and register today. Now, back to Dr. Amy Faith Ho. Hey, everyone. Thanks again so much for joining us here at ASEP Nowcast. I am so pleased to be sitting here right now with Dr. Ariane Nashat. She is a emergency medicine and palliative care doctor with a really interesting background in traditional Chinese medicine and also pain management. And she's also faculty at 
uh, Balboa Naval Medical Center, the VA, and also Scripps in San Diego. So Ariane, that is a lot of titles and a lot of content to cover, but I want to say thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me, Amy. I personally am a huge girl fan of yours as well and your book that you had published and uh, loved our connection that we created at Feminem back in 2017. Yeah. And so I'm so pleased to have you again here on Ace Up Nowcast. I loved what you had to say, yeah, a couple years ago when I saw you at Feminem about alternative pain management. And you had... Um, a really interesting background on non-pharmacologic methods. So tell us a little bit about your experience, how you got into alternative pain management, what that means in the ER. Great. So when I first went to medical school, I fell in love with integrative medicine as one of my electives. I did an elective at Sound Shore Medical Center in New Rochelle Hospital. And they paired us with acupuncture students who were doing their masters, and we spent six weeks learning from them and with them. And part of the experience was also for us to experience all of the modalities that they themselves were learning. And I found that, first of all, it was fascinating. I was going into my fourth year and into the match, so of course, a very stressful time for for many of us. And I really was just fascinated and enamored in, in what I was learning and seeing. And I thought to myself, this is really cool. I wish I knew more about this. Um, and then the match happened and I became a resident and inevitably that fell by the wayside because residency is super busy. But before I finished that six-week elective, the acupuncturist I was paired with gave me a copy of the book by Ted Capcha called The Web That Has No Weaver. And in it, it really attempts to explain sort of the philosophy and, and pathophysiology conceptually of, of meridian theory and, and how traditional Chinese medicine sort of approaches health and healthcare. And what I found was that I, I wanted to know more about it, didn't have time to. And then when I graduated residency, I was diagnosed with an early stage malignancy, which was unexpected. And I was diagnosed by my acupuncturist. And after going through that experience and, and having Eastern medicine sort of support me through that journey, I found myself getting pulled back into the Eastern medicine space, so to speak. And I was asked to become faculty at one of the local acupuncture schools in Berkeley in California. And in exchange for me teaching them Western medicine, because a third of their curriculum is actually Western medicine, they taught me Eastern medicine. And I found that I wanted to find a, a practice and a way of incorporating that into my emergency medicine practice and then just into medicine in general. I found that having more tools in the toolkit, so to speak, was better than having less tools. And I'm sure every emergency medicine physician listening to this can relate to the revolving door of patients who come into the ER. And, you know, you speak about how this connects to, to the pain management side of things, you know, back in the late 1990s, early 2000s, when patients would come through the ER and it was, oh, I want Dilaudid, you know, give me the D drug. Vitamin D, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I know that for myself, it was super frustrating to constantly have that revolving door of, I wasn't fixing anything. I was purely putting a Band-Aid on a problem that 
you know, by definition was I have pain X and I don't know why I have pain X and Western modalities weren't helping me figure out what was wrong with them. Their CTs were fine. Their lab tests were fine, but the vitamin D fixed them. Right. And so I really wanted to figure out a way to approach those patients differently. And so I had started a pilot in the emergency department at Kaiser Walnut Creek and brought in a team of 16 licensed acupuncturists. And we basically did a study um, and we took patients who presented to the ER, anyone who came in who was not a critical level care patient, and we offered them acupuncture as part of their ED visit and looked to see what the outcomes were and whether it made any difference. And we were fascinated with what we found, which was, first of all, the patients were super receptive, which I think was a little surprising. We were in a fairly affluent, upper scale area. And I wasn't sure how people would respond to it. But the patients themselves were over the top welcoming of, of having acupuncturists in the room. Um, the nurses had the lowest sick out rate, which was an interesting workplace finding. We weren't expecting that either. Um, they were allowed during their breaks to get an acupuncture treatment. And so their work-related stress went down. Their patients in general did better. They were better able to offer and advocate the acupuncture to their patients um, mostly because they themselves had experienced it. And so they were able to say, yeah, you know, I did some acupuncture. It really helped my shoulder pain. It really helped my back pain. It helped my migraines. It helped my whatever their symptom was that was bothering them. It was a very different experience when they were able to advocate from a place of having done it themselves. And so that was an interesting finding that we didn't expect. And then the docs fell into three categories that I like to describe as a third were in the staunchly evidence-based, if it's not a double-blinded placebo-controlled study in Lancet, it is therefore voodoo and witchcraft. Um, <laughs> those were the folks who kind of looked at me cross-eyed. Um, a third of them were neutral and just kind of sat back and didn't want to weigh in one way or the other, didn't really care if it impacted them or not as long as it didn't affect their length of stay. And then there was a third of the docs who were receptive to it, mostly because they themselves or someone in their family had had a positive experience in the past. Interesting. Yeah. And so did you feel like the patients overall wanted it to continue? Because it sounds like it was a pilot program. Like afterwards, did they want to still continue to have that in an ER setting? So they did want it to continue. Um, I tried to get it through as like a formal full-fledged IRB study, and I could not get it through the IRB. They were really struggling with it, having so many sort of treatment options for multiple conditions, and IRBs are not fans of that. They really prefer sort of like drug A versus drug B for condition X. Um, and so we actually turned it into a quality improvement project. Um, and I was asked by the chief of staff of the hospital and the chief of process improvement, actually, if I wanted to become the pain doc for the hospital, which I thought was hysterically funny. Um, I said, on, on what planet do you think I want to be the pain doc? And they were like, well, you know, you were so interested in not giving everybody dilaudid and blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, but it wasn't because I want to be the pain doc. It's because I want to treat them more holistically. And after a nine month search of talking to every chronic pain doc and, and pain anesthesiologist and being turned down by everyone for that job, they came back to me and said, hey, would you consider doing this if we let you do it more as an integrative thing? And I said, yeah, that would be something I would consider. And so we started off with what was supposed to be a six-month pilot, and it then turned into the next eight years of my career at Kaiser. And we had our 
first inpatient integrative symptoms management service. And so our team consisted of physicians and nurses and acupuncturists and pharmacists. And then we had a cadre of volunteers who did everything from Reiki to guided meditation, to healing touch, to yoga. And we expanded actually into outpatient oncology about 60 to 70% of our patients were oncology patients from the acutely inpatient setting. And we started doing translational research and actually did a, a fair amount of, of translational research and just publishing locally within the Kaiser system about what we were doing and found that our oncology patients did a lot better when in fact they were treated with our comprehensive integrative approach as compared to the standard allopathic approach for their oncologic uh, chemotherapy and treatment protocols. Yeah. And that's awesome, especially in this bigger like context. Like, I mean, it sounds like this was several years ago, but you know, now, you know, geez, multimodal analgesia, you know, trying to come up with ways that aren't opioids to help people is uh, such a focus. So it's like you were really ahead of times by doing what you did when you did on this. It was definitely pre the opiate pandemic um, discussions and, and the acknowledgement that opioids were, were really a huge problem for us nationally. Um, and, it, and it was interesting because when I first started the program, I, I think we were the first in the country to start providing physicians in the ER, surgical setting, and inpatient hospitalist group um, FTE-specific data about their prescribing practices. And, um, you know, it was interesting because initially people were like, well, I work more hours than so-and-so, and so, of course, I prescribe more opiates. And it was interesting because when we broke it down by FTE, it, it didn't bear to be true. Um, the people who were just further out on the bell curve were consistently uh, further out on the bell curve. Yeah, no matter how you measure it. Exactly. And, and we started giving people direct feedback about what their prescribing practices were and how they were doing and, and really gave them real-time feedback. And it really changed practice in the emergency department because people started realizing, wow, you know, I'm in the top, you know, five percentile of prescribing narcotics and I'm giving really large prescriptions for a lot more days than my colleagues. And we were really able to change practice because of that. Um, and, and with that, also within the surgical prescribing group, the hospitalist prescribing group. So it was definitely ahead of, of the times. But I'm glad to see that it's something that people started to recognize nationally as a huge problem and have, have addressed that. Um, it's still an issue today in the sense that now we have a, a different problem. Um, one of not prescribing opiates, which is something I, I talk about and have given a couple of talks for ASAP about it and a couple of other settings called opiates are not the enemy. Opiates aren't the enemy. Opiates are a tool. And it's about how do we use that tool and how do we use it safely and effectively and, and how do we best understand what to reach for and when. Yeah. And in this integrated paradigm that you've had, which is really interesting as an ER doctor, you know, because we're very like, you know, epinephrine and ROSC and shockum and sepsis and so on. Like this is very much on the other side, but it's a good counterbalance to, I think, healthcare, which is chopped up in organs. Like we consult cardiology or we consult ortho. But I think you've actually taken a really interesting, I don't want to say pivot because it actually all flows well with your career into palliative. So I did want to make sure we got a chance to ask you, tell me about palliative. 
So I started Pality as a company about a year ago, and it was largely in response to the pandemic. So I'm boarded in both um, emergency medicine, hospice, and palliative medicine, and I have been working doing inpatient palliative, in particular oncologic pain management within the palliative sphere for the last uh, decade or so. And what I found during the pandemic is that we were witnessing death and dying on a level that has not been seen before in this country and, and certainly not visibly, right? So when people have died uh, historically, it's been private, it's been quiet, it, it has been witnessed by individual families or communities, but rarely has it been on the scale that we saw nationally and certainly internationally. And it really bothered me that patients were not dying with dignity, they were not given the support that they need, that families had never had conversations with their loved ones about what it is that they do or don't want. Um, and so I founded Pallity, and initially it was gonna just be a concierge palliative practice, really. Um, I, I figured, you know, I, I know how to do this really, really well, I should offer this to, to people. And I realized that I could only impact one family or one patient or one hospital system, and the the real lack of access was the bigger problem and so from that i actually pivoted to building palady as a company that is a platform so palady is a platform that is for patients and for family members clinicians healthcare systems insurers doesn't matter who you are in the healthcare sphere but if you have someone who has a palliative diagnosis, which to, to clarify for our audience, if they're not as familiar, it's not the same thing as hospice. Palliative is for patients who have any kind of life-limiting diagnosis uh, for which they're still undergoing some kind of disease-modifying treatment. So using cancer, which is one that most people are familiar with, you're still doing chemo or radiation or immunotherapy um, or surgery. There's still something we're doing to change how that serious illness is behaving. That puts you squarely in the palliative side of it. You become eligible for hospice when one of two things happens. Either A, we've run out of things as a medical community to offer to change the behavior of that disease, or B, you as a patient have said, you know what, thank you so much. I've done 16 different lines of chemotherapy. I'm really not interested in doing this anymore. And so I realized in, in sort of witnessing what happened with COVID is that we as a nation had a, a slight opening in that door where people were suddenly willing to talk about it. And people were willing to acknowledge their own mortality. And conversations were starting to happen, but people needed more guidance on how to have those conversations. And so the goal of Pality is, is based on three pillars. One is the support and community where patients and caregivers and clinicians can uh, interact with each other in a HIPAA-compliant fashion and get support and education. The second pillar is the actual administration of expert palliative care by palliative care interdisciplinary teams via telehealth using machine learning and AI to really guide decisions and, and actual clinical plans for those patients and those families. And then the last is a marketplace for all things related to palliative goods. Um, so if you need access to resources for, you know, home-based care for nursing or physical therapy or speech therapy, or you need access to legal support to deal with living wills and trusts, and you want to do legacy work for yourself, or you want to actually create memories for your family members. Um, so really the idea was to take the scary and frightening serious illness and make access to all the things that someone would need to support them in one place. That's awesome. And you know, it's interesting because 
with the traditional medicine, pain management side of things, you've taken such an integrated approach to addressing the body. And it sounds like a palliative, you've taken a really integrated approach to addressing, you know, palliative care and end of life care, which is such like a need in our society today. It really is. And what's interesting is a lot of people look at me and they say, I don't understand. How did you get from ER to palliative? It seems sort of polar opposite. Um, But I think ER docs actually make some of the best palliative care docs because we are used to doing the super aggressive resuscitative stuff on the other side. And so we know when we're doing something that doesn't feel right, that doesn't feel good, where we're like, God, I really wish someone had had a conversation with this patient or this family before we went ahead and did all of these insane things that we do. And I think we're, we're very uniquely positioned because of that to know when it's not the right thing to do. So I've been thrilled to see more and more ER docs going into the palliative space. And I think from a physician wellness perspective, also having that work-life balance that palliative offers because it's a more reasonable schedule, it's more regular shifts, Um, you know, docs who are dual boarded like I am um, in this really are able to create a unique niche for themselves where I am about 0.75 palliative and I'm 0.5 ER. Um, which again is probably not the most work-life balance answer right there, but, but yeah, I was like greater than one on, <laughs> on the work-life balance. Yeah. It's, it's greater than one FTE, but the balance in terms of the stress and what my cortisol levels are and what my, my sort of demands are on both my time and the kind of time are different because I'm able to use both sides of that. And I can have my more aggressive sort of, you know, in the trenches, knife and gun club experience, but I can also have the, let me sit down and hold your hand and talk to you for an hour and a half side of things, which I think a lot of docs really are missing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it gives us a balance because you're right. We see basically about as barbaric as medicine can be, you know, with resuscitations, like ECMO, all those heroic measures. And uh, I think we have a really good cognition on, you know, outcomes and what this looks like not long-term because we see that as well. Um, now, Ariane, I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story, your experiences. I'm sure there's going to be tons of questions um, from people who hear this. Um, can they reach out to you on Twitter? If so, uh, do you want to tell them your handle? Absolutely. So it's just my name at Ariane Nishat. I think there's an MD thrown in there as well, but my name is pretty unique. So it's pretty easy to find me. I'm also on LinkedIn under my name. You can email me at docnishat at pality.com if you have questions specifically related to pality. But I welcome anyone and everyone who's interested in learning more about either traditional Chinese medicine or integrative medicine, or how can I be an ER doc and also do palliative. We mint about 500 new fellows a year in the country for EM Palliative and Scripps, the program that I'm affiliated with, we take seven fellows a year. And I think we've had probably at least a 25 to 50% application rate that are coming from EM docs. So happy to answer any questions that people have. And thanks again for having me. So that's it for us this episode. I'd like to give another huge thank you to both Dr. Nishat and Dr. Arbelias for giving us the time and sharing their experiences. We hope you enjoyed listening too. 
Now, just because we didn't cover it here doesn't mean there isn't still tons of content waiting for you in the July issue of ASAP Now in your mailbox. Check out a great piece that I think all is very near and dear to our hearts about workplace violence and the reforms that are coming to keep all of us, ourselves, and our patients safe. There's a great Q&A with our fearless editor, Dr. Dark, and ASEP president, Dr. Jillian Schmitz, to also be sure to not miss. And of course, as always, some great content for your practice. Suture strength, what's coming in sepsis, why Benadryl is evil, and some tips and tricks on pericarditis. So keep tuning in with us on NowCast. We'll be back next month with the medical content and some medical humanities content, which will be a bit new and fun for us. As always, we are wanting to grow and evolve as you all grow and evolve, and we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us if you've got an idea at ASEPNow, or feel free to tweet me direct at Amy Faith Ho. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback and keep you tuning in. Thanks all. See you next time.